Amen. All right, well, first, thanks, Pastor Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to come and share God's Word with you tonight. How are you all doing? Good? Yeah? Good. Thank you, worship team, too, leading us into this time. It's always good to sing the Lord's praises before we have a chance to really dive into His Word. So thank you for that. I'm grateful. Uh, I have a question for you as we start. So how many of you play a sport? Let's go. Man, that's almost half the room. And mainly just this half of the room. (laughs) Okay. How many of you that play sports uh, run track as a sport? Track? Yeah? Excellent. Excellent. So I ran track growing up. Uh, I ran cross country in the fall, and then I did indoor track in the wintertime, and then outdoor track in the summertime. It was, or the springtime. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I was in much better shape back then. It was a great time, though. Uh, I had this, this interesting story, though, that came out of track one year. Um, who's had a, a really good coach when they've been in sports before? And raise your hand if you've had a really bad coach in sports before. Okay. Same hands. I love it. I had a great coach for indoor track, and so we would pack up. I was living in Maryland at the time. We would pack up from our high school, get on the bus, and we'd drive from Columbia, Maryland, all the way into the city of Baltimore where the National Guard Armory was held. So they had this indoor arena. It was an eighth track, not a quarter track, but an eighth size track. And we would sit there for hours and hours and hours on a Tuesday night to have our indoor track meets. And they'd do all the events indoors, pole vaulting and high jump, And then, of course, all the relays and the distance running. And I did one of the relays, but my favorite event was the 1600. It was one mile. I loved that event. It was was just long enough because I wasn't fast to be a sprinter, but it wasn't too long where I had to run for a really long time and I got really tired. So I loved the one-mile event. It was great. But my first year that I did it, uh, I was still learning what it meant to actually uh, run track correctly. And so I had a great coach. And this coach would walk around, and she was fantastic. She would walk the floor, and we would be sitting waiting for our events. You know, like most things in track, you sit for a long time, and that's hurry up to go do something, and then sit again for a long time and wait for your next event. And so she's walking around the whole time saying, all right, everybody stay loose. Stay loose. Keep walking around. Keep stretching. Stay loose. Keep walking around. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't have to stay loose. I'm going to get tired walking around. You know what I've got? I've got the secret sauce. I've got power bar in my bag, thinking to myself that if I throw down that power bar a few minutes before I go out there to run, I'm going to have all the super energy that I need to go and crush this one mile event, right? So I don't need to stay loose. I just got to eat the right thing real quick, get that sugar fix, the protein real quick, and I'm ready to go. It didn't go as well as I thought it was going to go. So I go out to run my first lap. I'm okay. I'm starting to feel a little bit tired all, all of a sudden. And then I go to do my second lap, and all of a sudden, I've got a little stitch right here on the side. Who's had that cramp when you, yeah, you didn't stretch right? Yep, right. So I finally get to my third lap. And remember, I have to do eight for this because it's a half track, right? And I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to work. Well, I started out great because I had all that sugar. I was in first place, but by the end of the race, I was the last one to cross the finish line. Now, there was a lesson learned in that. Is there anything wrong with an energy bar? No. No, it's a good thing. But there's something that my coach was trying to teach all of us in that moment, and that there are good things, but then there are the best things to do, to prepare for what's ahead. And so tonight, as we look at the scriptures, I want you to think about that mindset. There are a lot of great things, I'm sorry, a lot of good things to do 
when it comes to life and ministry as we witness for Christ and be his hands and feet. And yet, our preparation should actually direct us toward the best things, the right things. And so we're going to think about that tonight. So let's all open our Bibles to 1 Timothy 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 16. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason... We labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. And don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on hands by the council of the elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is an interesting situation that's happening here. The author of this letter is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it to the person that this letter is named after. It's Timothy, right? Now, Paul had gone on several missionary journeys. He was either the person who was helping to plant churches in certain areas across um, the area of Greece, um, or he was pouring into leaders that he was then sending out to see healthy churches planted. It's a good picture of Paul and Timothy there. And so as Paul's communicating to Timothy, he's actually, this is a part of his commissioning out to send him to be a part of the leadership of the Ephesian church. Ephesus was a a good church. It was, for the most part, biblically sound, but there were some issues that were starting to present itself. Like all things when it comes to the church, we see this now, and we definitely saw it in the early stages of the church, a false gospel. It started to creep in a little bit among the believers. You get the right great personality, a commanding voice, a little bit of a following, and all of a sudden, a false gospel has creeped in. Let's make no mistake, that same thing happens even now today. The enemy is cunning in bringing lies and deceit to either cloud or distort the gospel of Christ. And so that was what's happening today and this day. So one of the things that we'd seen back there at Ephesus, and there's a lot of different churches that had the same situation, but uh, people were preaching a gospel where you actually had to gain additional knowledge about God, and in doing so, then you would have a sense of a secure salvation. But if you didn't do so, you weren't really secure in being held by Christ. Uh, there was this idea of, I mean, they were constructing all kinds of old stories um, you, you see here in this reading, talking about genealogies and myths. They were combining Old Testament history and making up some story and then kind of calling that the gospel. It was essentially a new gospel altogether. In the end, what happened was, 
all these different false gospels were clouding the picture of what was true, and it was drowning the church in a sense of controversy. They were always fighting over the, trying to hold to the purity of the gospel because you had all these added voices that were out there that were trying to muddy the waters. And so people were bogged down in things that were not gospel-centric, or they were constantly fighting over things that were not the gospel at all. Not even close. And so the church was in need of strong leadership. Timothy was a young follower. He was a young follower. And so Paul, as he's older in age, here you see him imprisoned, pouring into Timothy, is commissioning him out, even though he's a young follower in Christ, to see him be a leader in this church. This is important. At the IMB, we look at the fullness of our work in what we call the missionary task. It's the missionary task, actually, of the church. On this next slide, you can see it. We look at a people group where there is no gospel presence, and we see our stewardship as missionaries are sent out to look at that people group and then begin to think about how they can first enter that people group. Entry is critical. We want to make sure that missionary presence can be sustained there. What do they speak language-wise? What do they believe? How are we going to share the gospel, a right gospel, contextually so that they understand it and don't get a misinformed version of what the gospel is? We want to enter. Once we enter, we want to share the gospel. That's our evangelism. We want to then disciple new believers who come to faith in Christ, right? Discipleship is core to who we are as the church. It's core to who we are as followers. We're growing as disciples. So we gather new believers and we disciple them. As those new believers are discipled, they then begin to form healthy churches. There's all kinds of elements of what that look like, but primarily following the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the number of other things that we want to see, like the preaching of God's word done rightly. We want to see them doing missions and praying and worshiping. Those are good things too. But that's important. And then this last one is where we see what the story is for here in Timothy. This idea of leadership development. right? Paul is trying to hand off the work to local leaders. And he's noticing that there are some, there's some health in Ephesus. But there's also lots of false gospel. So as a part of his desire to move on to new places, he's sending Timothy back in to make sure that the gospel holds true in that area. Healthy church formation and then leadership development, seeing from those, the indigenous peoples that are now followers of Christ to be disciple makers of their own and to carry on the Great Commission themselves, recognizing their role in seeing the Revelation 7-9 vision where those from all, Tongues and tribes and peoples and languages are worshiping the Lord. That they would see their stewardship to go out and and make disciples of those nations as well too. And then finally to exit into new fields. So this is where we are. We're looking at at the section between healthy church and leadership development. So there's some words we have to look at before we dive into the material here. Now I told you the purpose for tonight is to think about the difference between what's good and what's best. So let's, let's think about this for a second because the Apostle Paul actually gives us a specific comparison that we should be mindful of. Let's look back at this one particular verse. I'll read it, and then let's flip to the next slide. He says, had nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, but rather train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. The Greek word for train is the word Gumnazo. Gumnazo. Does that look familiar to anybody? 
what English word looks like that word? Gym, gymnasium, right? So Paul's all about them gains, right? I'm just kidding. Gymnasium is the word that we derive from that. And you see the definition there is actually to exercise vigorously. Some translations actually interpret it to say to exercise naked. Now think about that for a second. This is, this is Greek times. The Olympics, the Olympic sports were done in the nude, right? And there's actually a cool biblical principle when you think about that because if you think about it, if you're exercising, you don't want to have anything that's holding you back, right? And there's some biblical principle in the idea of discipline or training in a way that sin or the worries of this life don't get in the way of you pursuing a godly following of Christ. Um, We'll stick to this definition. It's a little bit easier for us to work with tonight. So, as we think about this, um, the author Kent Hughes wrote The Disciplines of a Godly Man. He calls this idea of gymnazo, this, this, this training for godliness, is kind of a spiritual sweat. And so what does it mean for us to discipline ourselves or to train ourselves? You see, exercising vigorously, either the mind or the body. Well, think about this. If you do anything for a sport, if you work out, you're looking at, Specific focus, right? Whether it's muscle groups or skills, you're working hard, you're sacrificing your time, you're pushing your mind and your body to new limits. And I'll say this too, training is not just an event. Like, you don't just go to practice and then that's it. Training's a process. And it's the same thing with the walk as a believer. This concept translates to our walk in following Christ. Training for us never stops. We never stop learning. We never stop making mistakes and growing. Training has a process. Training also has a goal. And so what's the goal for us here with Timothy and then for us as we read this? We train for godliness. Remember Paul said, physical training has some value, but godliness has value for all things. It holds the promise for both the current life and the life to come. So the idea of godliness is the Greek word ubaseia, piety towards God, godliness, holiness, right? Christ-likeness, following an example of what Christ showed us in his life and ministry. Donald Whitney defined it as this. He said, godliness is both closeness to Christ and conformity to Christ. A conformity that's both inward and outward, meaning our heart and our walk. A growing conformity to both the heart of Christ and to the life of Christ. And so Paul's talking to Timothy here, and he's essentially saying this. I want you to discipline yourself, but not to become just the best version of yourself, I want you to train your body and your mind and your spirit and your work to the point where you look like Jesus. This is not self-help. This is Christ-like reflection. And so we see this again in Romans 8.29, just kind of an insert here thinking about this. Um, Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, "For, for those God foreknew, us, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So think about the power in that statement. So God, as he elects those who would have faith in him, and we come to faith in him, 
he then walks us through a process of training, but he's already decided for us that in the course of life and ministry, he's going to grow us to look like Jesus. All of these things are predestined for us. Our only job is to submit to that and to trust him in those circumstances. So what's the point here? So Paul's making a a really bold statement. Um, If I'm Timothy, this is me, and I'm thinking about I'm going into a city I've never been to before, and I'm going to be a leader in that city. I'm going to start thinking of all the things like I would do for my own job, right? I would start thinking about, well, what are my goals, right? I got to meet the right people and make the right network connections and have the right milestones and goals. I would start thinking strategically about that area, right? I, that's not what Paul is saying here. Those are good things. What Paul is saying to Timothy is there is a best thing, and that is your exhibited Christ-likeness. Young as you are, Let that be what this church sees as you go to lead them well. So Paul makes a bold statement. And I think that this statement of there is a best over things that are still good comes down to these kinds of questions. If there's so many things that seem important, well, what's the most important then in my individual walk? What's good and what's best? Physical training has some value, but spiritual training has value for all things. So the question we then have to ask is then what for us in our work is temporary and what is eternal? Because that's the line of delineation that Paul's making here. And you know what I mean by that. There's a a separation that there are things that are for us to love and to serve here in a temporary way, but those things will not last forever. You all remember this past weekend, Pastor Monty referenced this. We think about what's happening around the world today. And there are a lot of problems. Nashville is a problem. Murder, premeditated murder, anger to that degree is a problem. But is it the world's greatest problem? Earthquakes in Central Asia that have killed thousands. It's a terrible thing that we're seeing in that continent right now. We know so many folks that are in that area. It's It's troubling to see the needs and then just the pain. Earthquakes are a problem, but is that the world's greatest problem? Floods in the Americas, war in Europe, hunger here in our own backyards. These are real problems, but are they the world's greatest problem? No. The world's greatest problem is spiritual lostness. Lostness. A person dying without placing their hope and faith in Christ and spending then eternity without him. All other problems end in death. Everything. Poverty, war, famine, everything eventually ends, as terrible as they are, ends in death. Except one. And that's lostness. And so think about that kind of a contrast as we think about what Paul encourages Timothy to do as he's walking into this church or these churches that are in the area of Ephesus and helping to direct his steps to be a right leader in the way. And so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to look at what Paul asks him to do, and then I'm going to give an encouragement to us from other areas of the scriptures of what the right discipline will look like to get us on the right path as we think about our own lives and our own ministries.
First, he says, align your hope in Christ. Set your hope in Christ. I'll read again for you. For this reason, this is verse 10, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people. Paul's point here is clear. Fundamental to all of our work, and this means your sharing of the gospel in your classrooms with your friends, on the soccer field, here at church, the way that you love and serve in the ministries that we have here, there is a clear fundamental mark for us. And that is having a hope that is anchored in Christ. Why? Well, I don't know if you're like me, but it's so easy for us to put our hope in everything else besides Christ. So think about it. You put hope in your relationship with your parents, your friendships, your relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend. You put hope in things like the next soccer season, right? Or the next dance recital or the next track meet or the next whatever it might be, the next birthday, the next time you get a paycheck from the job that you make so little money at, right? You put hope in all kinds of things. And the way that we start to think about these things as being something that we place our hope in is this. We think, if I lost that tomorrow, how would that affect me? Christ should be preeminent over all in our lives. But there are things that we hold attachments to, idols even, that if we were to lose those, it would not just emotionally wreck us, it would really set us back. That's the things that we're looking for. First Peter 1, 3-4, the Apostle Peter says, Praise be to God, I'm sorry, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Things eternal versus things temporal, right? Things temporary. So the reality is this. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Life and ministry will be joyful, but at times they will be extremely difficult, unbearable maybe even. And there may come a time where you think to yourself, how, Lord, like Moses, thinks to himself, who am I to do this? When uh, what you do, uh, when, when you've been ministering to people in a certain area, and then like in Central Asia, and then all of a sudden there's earthquakes, and then there's perishing all around you. How do you respond in situations where death is so prevalent? When your friend who's been faithfully coming to youth group suddenly drops out, what happens when you get suddenly passed over for that leadership spot in your club or your sport? What do you do when your family is suddenly pulled out of a country in the middle of the night with nothing besides your go bag, like some of our missionaries have experienced in areas around the world just in the last three years? And all the the life and the friendships and the relationships are gone. They're severed just like that. How does that affect us? There's a sweet story in the Gospel of Matthew where there's a father who had just lost his kid, and as he's as he's, he's coming to the Lord, begging of him to come and raise his child from the dead, he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's this kind of desire that the Lord's seeking after from us, that we would anchor our hope 
securely and firm in him and him alone. The first point that's laid out for us is that we would have a hope that is securely in Christ. Because every other thing that we anchor our hope to, hope to will eventually fail us. So, what's the best way to grow our hope in Christ? The discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer. There is only one way that's going to help to put us in a position of dependence on Christ and then inflame within us a hope within Christ. And that is prayer. To know that only God can provide, to know what his will is, to find strength in hard times, and to hold fast to our calling. Other thing that's important with prayer is to remember that as we pray and ask of him for things, we recognize that the good seasons and bad seasons both are just temporary. And so prayer is critical for us. Next, be an example of Christ. Verse 12, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This is interesting. It's a good little parallel here, but it's important for us to recognize Paul's making a big point. Spiritual maturity always trumps age-based maturity. He's sending Timothy in to be around believers who are much older than he is. But spiritual maturity is so much more important and valuable in the kingdom of God than age maturity. So, why? Why do we exemplify Christ in these situations? Well, Paul said it best. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ in his life and ministry in the Gospels showed us perfectly how we ought to live. He both loved and engaged lost peoples who were hurting and in need, and as he ministered to their needs, he also shared about the kingdom of God, asking them to turn and repent and place their faith in the living God. So our exemplifying of Christ, both in speech, right, and what we believe, he says, in faith and in love, all these aspects of our life have to mesh together. We cannot just be a people of the word. We have to be a people who act out the word of God. We cannot pass by the person who is in desperate need and say, be blessed, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We must be those who minister to their needs as well as their spiritual needs. Remember, there's good and there's best. And so when it comes to being an example of Christ, there is a discipline that's really important here, and that's the discipline of integrity. Integrity. Now, I think it's important that we understand what that means. Um, Growing up, you might have heard this. uh, The definition of integrity is doing the right thing when what? No one's watching, right? And that's, that's somewhat right. That's an example of what would be right. But that's not the word that we want to adhere to. And that's not the word that's used in the Greek and here in the, uh, in the scriptures. The idea of integrity is actually the idea of wholeness or completeness. So we have to understand the biblical idea of integrity is this idea of us being whole. So we derive the English word from that Latin word, which emphasizes the quality because it integrates all things in our lives together. It characterizes the entire person, not just part of him. He is righteous and honest through and through. He's not only that inside, but also outside. And so the reason why 
I'm calling integrity the important discipline for us is that as we exemplify Christ, Christ was both word and deed to those that he ministered to. And so our response is the same, word and deed. We must have our walk match up with our faith, regardless of age. Psalm 15 actually gives a nice picture of this for us when it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. Who who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken because their faith, their belief, their trust in the Lord is matched by their actions toward their neighbors. The discipline of integrity. Next, Dedicate to the gospel of Christ. Dedicate to the gospel of Christ. He says, this is Paul to Timothy, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. We recognize this. Maintaining purity of the gospel in the church comes down to a healthy understanding of the gospel itself. We cannot be a people who just say one thing, I'll follow Jesus, I love Jesus, Jesus is a cool guy, I'm good with the big man upstairs, and then have no comprehension, no dedication to the wholeness of his gospel. Paul made it very clear. You're going into a place where you're going to hear a lot of different things about the gospel. It is important for you to adhere to that which I've commanded you in the scriptures. We see from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, the principle that wraps this up nicely for us. So this is the next letter to Timothy from Paul. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training, there's a word, in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I told you that the idea of A false gospel, and you've heard this from Mark countless times, is very prevalent in our world today. So I want you to imagine that you're at a church in Zimbabwe. This is a church, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches in Zimbabwe. So imagine you're there and you walk into a church on a particular Sunday and uh, you see a man who comes forward who's been plagued with a particular illness. Okay, This is a a Christ-exalting church. And this man has been plagued with this illness for a long time. And you see him approach the pastor who's in the church, and then all of a sudden the pastor picks out a can of bug spray, bug spray, and begins to hold the man down and spray him in the face with the bug spray to remove all the unclean spirits from this man's life. This is a Christ-exalting church that has a demented practice of what it means to be the church. They have a lacking version of the gospel. If not, they have a blasphemous version of the gospel. They've mixed a form of what we would call animism, belief in the spirits, with the gospel. They've taken one God and put it on the shelf and another God and put it on the same shelf and said, we'll worship both of these gods. Imagine that same 
another church down the road, you go and visit, and uh, you go to meet with the pastor after the service, and he comes up to you with his cell phone, and he begins to take a selfie of the two of you. And you're thinking, this is really strange. Okay. But when you ask him why he did that, he says to you, well, I go back and look at the pictures to identify if there are any spirits that are in your life that are causing evil problems. These are real stories from our missionaries. This is really happening. So do you see why it's so critical that Paul encourages Timothy to commit to the teaching of God's word? And so for our sake, as we think about how we will be training ourselves to prevent us from falling into this, we think about the discipline of Bible intake. Bible memorization, Bible intake, Bible digestation, just absorbing in God's word into our lives. And this is arguably, in my opinion, the most important of the disciplines that we would hear tonight because it's the center of truth for all the other disciplines that we follow. When you think about it, say you're serving in a cross-cultural context. You don't have a Lifeway ordering system to have something delivered next door or Amazon to have it delivered next day. Where are you going to derive your discipleship materials? How are you going to sit down with somebody to walk through what it means to follow Jesus, the scriptures. How do you know where to go to study the scriptures? How do you know what verses to point them to when there's a struggle in a relationship, the scriptures? It's important for us as we communicate the gospel and seeing healthy churches planted all around the world that we're not just trying to communicate an American westernized version of Christianity. We are trying to see the gospel propagate, not Swift Creek Baptist Church, it's the gospel. And certainly we don't want something that's a false gospel, something that sounds good, feels good, but in the end doesn't deliver on salvation. We do not want to see that go. And so for our sake, as we think about how we should grow and what Timothy is thinking about as he's going into Ephesus, Bible reading, memorization, digesting, and then teaching is critical for the work. And then finally, Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to serve with perseverance like Christ. He says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. So practice these things and be committed to them so that your progress is evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching and persevere in these things. For in doing so, this will help you to save both yourself and your hearers. Serve with perseverance. Timothy, you're going in. Don't go in as the top dog, right? What we see from Christ and his example is that he made himself a servant. Christ came to save. Christ lowered himself for our sake that he might save us. So the posture of of us. And if Timothy going to Ephesus is one of lowering oneself. Why? So that we love one another. This goes back to what we discussed earlier. But there's this idea, you look in the scriptures, there's some 52, 54 even more by some accounts, one another's. Loving one another, encourage one another, build up one another. There's all kinds of things that we as the church in community should be doing for one another. We have a responsibility to use the gifts that the Spirit has given to us. And before you say, Chris, that's, I don't have a gift. If you're a follower of Christ, let me tell you, 1 Corinthians 12 will tell you you have at least a gift. Because that's his doing. 
in his will to each, the scripture said, a gift is given. And for many of us, many gifts, that we might use them in the context of the church. And there's a, a little graph to show you what some of those look like. Administration and giving and service and evangelism, encouragement, mercy. There's lots of things that we should be doing. Paul is telling Timothy, don't neglect your gift. Don't get there and be so disheartened by the fact that these sweet people who do love Jesus have a manipulated gospel that you fail to do that which the Spirit has equipped you and tasked you to do. He's given you the talent, this gifting, to administer, to teach, to preach, to shepherd, to encourage. Don't stop. Don't stop. You have to endure. Galatians 6.9 says this, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the family of faith. And so for us, the final discipline that we'll look at tonight is the discipline of ministry. Discipline of ministry. I want you to cultivate a heart to serve. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about developing within yourself a heart to serve. Identifying how the Lord has gifted you, the passions that he's given you, and have a heart to serve. Um, Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, Enlarge your heart. Cultivate your heart. Discipline yourself for ministry. And you will enlarge your experience of pain. This is an, um, a kind of an intelligible spiritual axiom. No one's ever cultivated a ministering heart and lived a life of ease. Though, of course, the effects of these two kinds of hearts are drastically different. You have little hearts, though safe and protected, never contributing anything. And no one benefits from their restricted sympathies and vision. On the other hand, hearts that have embraced the disciplines of ministry, though they're vulnerable, the cultivated heart to serve is vulnerable to pains when things inevitably don't work out. They're also the hearts which possess the most joy and leave the heart imprint on the world. So we have to have a cultivated heart to serve and to endure, to persevere in the hard times. I'll wrap with this. At the IMB, we're launching a new pathway. This is brand new. It's an opportunity for 21 to 29-year-olds to do that which the church has been tasked for, 20, for 2,000 years now. We see those red dots as those where they, are, uh, they have nobody who actively right now is trying to witness for Christ among their people and see healthy churches planted. Some 3,000 people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups, that have no one that we know of in evangelical life, not just IMB missionaries, but no one in evangelical life trying to witness for, for Christ to them and see healthy churches planted. And so there is a reason, though, that some of these peoples, some 2,000 years later, still remain unreached and unengaged, as we would say. They're in some of the hardest-to-access places in the world. And so when we think about a ministry of service, enacting our gifts for God's glory, we think about places like in Africa, where if you're in a certain country in Africa, you might not have electricity for weeks. Which means that when it's blazing hot, you're taking a shower at night in your clothes just to lay in bed so you'll feel cool enough just to convince your mind to fall asleep. Why? Because you've cultivated a heart to serve. Because you recognize what Christ has done. 
And that don't these people have a right, a, a need to hear Christ crucified and raised from the dead for their behalf, that they can put their hope and trust in him. And so we're sending out over the next three years 300 young adults to go to those red dots, find them, research them. What do they know? What do they believe? Is there gospel presence there? And begin the work to see a healthy witness for Christ among that people. This is the hard work that's still ahead for us. And so as we think about these disciplines, this is where we're going. It's not just across the street, but it is. It's also to these hard places where languages and customs and culture and security create all kinds of issues. So the discipline for us, the training process now, is vital for the work now and as we grow older to see that the church does what she's been asked to do some 2,000 years ago. Let's pray and consider our response to this tonight. God, we thank you for your word and its clarity. We thank you that you have, by your word, given us the instructions that we need for life and for ministry. God, you have, um, you have prompted our hearts to consider both our neighbors and then also our ultimate calling and how you would use our lives, our passions, our education, our skills, our giftings for the gospel. And so if there are folks that are here tonight, if there are students that are sitting here who don't know you, God, first, I would, I would beg that they would consider Jesus. I would just beg that they would think about why they're here, what they've heard, all that you've done for them, going to the cross in joy for their sake, taking their sin on your shoulders, paying their punishment, the ones that we deserved, God, that I deserved, and extending to us mercy and grace that we might be forgiven through repentance. I just I pray that they would wrestle with that. Eternity stands in the balance. How would they respond? God, I pray that they would choose you. And for those of us that are followers of you, I would just ask that you would do this. Push us toward obedience, Lord. Embolden us to do the work that you've asked us to do. To be a witness to our friends, to help share with our neighbors. God, to even to consider for our sake how we might use our giftings and skills and passions to go to those places where you are not yet known. You say in your word, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Lord, tonight, as you've asked us to do, I pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, asking you to send out from Swift Creek, to send out from our churches here in Virginia, laborers, who will go across the state and around the world for your name and for your glory. You know my prayer. Amen.